0: Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. A couple of announcements. Same set of announcements, so... Just remember, we're putting together the boxes to send things over to uh, uh, Jim Myers in uh, Kiev, and we need to get that shipped off on the slow boat to Ukraine by the end of September, so it will get there by the middle of, of uh, December, and they'll have a certain amount of Christmas things, and there's a list back there of the kind of things that they need. Also, the shoebox ministry instructions are on the table, and then... Uh, We'll be having a picnic on Saturday, October the 9th from, um, what time did I say on Sunday? Uh 12 to 4. 12, 12 to 4, and so it takes about 45 minutes to get out to o- Orlando's, but that'll be a great time. Well, a uh, good time to have some games during the day and different activities. We'll probably do some of that first and then eat probably around... uh uh, 2 o'clock or so, but it's a great time just so everybody can get out and get to know other folks in the church and play some games and have some family uh, contests and do some other things like that. So make sure you uh, uh, have that on your calendar. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth, for the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're spiritually prepared to study the word this evening, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father again, we're thankful that we can be here to uh, fellowship around the study of your word, that we might be strengthened, encouraged that we might come to understand uh, what we believe and why we believe it, and that we might again be uh, challenged by your grace and how you have provided everything for us at no cost, and that we do nothing to earn or deserve uh, your benevolence toward us and that it is freely given but it is given because a price was paid, and that is the uh, sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross where he paid the penalty for sin, that once for all sin is paid for and dealt with, and therefore we have uh, true, genuine, eternal forgiveness, and we can rest in that. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we study this evening because these things apply to each one of us, and we need to think about them and and have the Holy Spirit make them clear to us, that we can see how they apply in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name, Amen. Okay, we are in Hebrews chapter twelve. For the last several weeks, several lessons—I think about five lessons—we were studying the one verse back in verse back in verse uh, <coughs> back in verse fourteen. To pursue peace. To pursue peace with all. And so I took the time to take a, do a topical study on what is involved in pursuing peace and the foundation for pursuing peace in terms of personal relationships. Now, let me just remind you of the context again of Hebrews chapter 12. There's a challenge that's been set forth in terms of a, of, of teaching. The teaching was given in the 11th chapter, all of these examples from the Old Testament. So the writer of Hebrews is showing us that the the Old Testament saints all had faith, and by means of faith, that is simply trusting God. Faith is not some sort of mystical thing. It's not some sort of emotion. It's not some sort of extra special orientation to the spiritual that some people have and some people don't. Faith is just faith. If you are driving down the street and you get somewhat lost and you need directions to get to the Galleria or to go downtown and you say, how do I get there? And somebody says, well, you go down here three blocks and you turn right and then you go straight till you get to the third light and turn left and you're there and you believe them, you have exercised faith. And when you follow their directions you have demonstrated that you have believed them but those are two different things believing them is one thing and then acting upon what they say is another thing they are not one in the same thing and that's where people get a little confused and there are philosophers who've picked this uh, all these ideas apart a number of ways and uh, but that's that those are the issues so faith is just that faith is Believing something, it's trusting in something to be true. And whatever it is you're trusting to be true, it is usually expressed or can be expressed in some sort of a, just a statement. Uh, Philosophers call it a proposition, that's why they sometimes refer to it in in relation to propositional logic, but it's just a, a, a statement that something is this way, and you say, okay, yes it is, or no it's not. And that's belief, that's faith. It's nothing special. So the object of faith, though, that we see in the the 11th chapter is always the promise of God, a specific promise of God. And when it gets to Abraham and Israel and the promises related to Abraham and Israel after Genesis 12, these promises almost always related to the promise that God would restore Israel to the land that he had given to Abraham and his descendants forever and ever. And this is the foundation of the rest of the Old Testament. I believe it's the foundation of history. We can't understand history at all unless we understand it from the divine viewpoint, which puts Israel and Jerusalem at the center of history. And that, because that is what God says in the Old Testament. And in Ezekiel, we have passages talk about uh, Jerusalem being at the center of the world. And it's not talking about a geographical center it's talking about the, the Jerusalem is the center of God's focus in terms of his plan for history. And so when we go through that chapter, the emphasis is on by faith. Uh, Abel did something, by faith Noah, by faith Abraham, by faith Isaac, by faith Jacob, all the way down uh, through that that chapter. And then there's a conclusion. Therefore, since we're surrounded by this great, Cloud of witnesses, and the imagery, the metaphor that that um, that we see in the first seventeen verses of chapter twelve is this athletic metaphor of a contest in a stadium. You know a contest like with the uh, uh, Houston Texans against the uh, Baltimore Colts this last week, where Houston finally and on a rare occasion uh, executed the plan well and won, but they're out on the field. Uh, of, of of competition uh, in front of a the stands that were sold out and filled with observers and so that's the idea is that those who are alive and living the uh, living the christian life are on the field to play and they are surrounded as it were in the stands not from the not it's not teaching that that those who've gone before us are watching us, but that they have set a standard. It, it would be to use the same football uh, imagery. It would be as if the stands were filled with all of the previous uh, players for all of the uh, you know NFL teams in the past, and all your uh, all your uh, veterans of football uh, throughout the last 40 or 50 years would be the ones who are in the stands, and they're the ones who are. Uh, cheering on those who are on the field. And so because they've done so well, that in light of that, then we have a precedent set, and so we should go forward. So that's the imagery, and the command here is uh, that because we're surrounded by this cloud of witnesses who set the standard, let us also lay aside every weight, the uh, sin that uh, encumbers us, that it's e- easy to uh, trip us up and run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's the challenge. Now, there's a problem is that in running that race, you have to run it according to according to the rules, and in the sense that you have to run according to uh, the sound doctrine that is laid down in the Scriptures. What's happened with the readers is they want to shift away from the sound doctrine that they've been taught. They want to um, uh, go back into... Uh, form of legalism. They want to go back into a form where uh, they are under the burden of the uh, of the Mosaic law and all of the uh, all of the rituals in order to try to uh, somehow gain and acquire the the uh, the approval of God. And so uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying that we need to keep the cross set before us and and keep going forward and run the race the right way and don't uh fall by the wayside. And so there are those who are running the race and they become limp and lame for whatever reason. He uses that that imagery in here and uh, uh they become weary and so they need to be strengthened. And we saw that in verse twelve, verse thirteen as a background to fourteen, which is that therefore lift up your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your faith. I mean make straight paths for your feet So that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed or rather be strengthened, and then pursue peace, and that is uh, the command there to pursue peace with everyone for the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. This is a challenge. This is not no one seeing the Lord in terms of of going to uh, heaven or being face-to-face with the Lord when you die. This, is as we studied, is a seeing the Lord in terms of a special uh, vision and presence and access in heaven and in the New Jerusalem that is reserved, as the book of Revelation teaches, for those who are overcomers. So this refers to a special class of believers who have overcome and who are... Um, have that special privilege in heaven related to inheritance. And so then there's the warning that comes from Esau, because Esau was one that put, took his eyes off the goal and put his eyes on temporal things, and he was more concerned about uh, feeding his faith and feeding his hunger than he was the special blessing and privilege of being the firstborn and the privileges that would have been given to him by way of his firstborn inheritance. Now, those, that's a key term that's used here because it focuses on the inheritance aspect that would have gone to Esau, but because he gave it up, he treated it lightly or profanely. Uh, it went to he traded it to Isaac for a bowl of red lentil soup. Now that that word firstborn comes in again when we get down into. Our current passage in verses eighteen uh, through twenty-four, because it's going to talk about the assembly or the church of the firstborn, and so we have have that as the context. So <clears throat> we've gone through all of this in these first seventeen verses, and then there's going to be an explanation. It's going to lead to an application. The explanation comes in verses eighteen to twenty-four, and then in twenty-five there is the application by way of another warning, uh, within uh, within the context of of uh, Hebrews. So tonight we'll be looking at verses eighteen, eighteen through twenty-four, and this focuses on two mountains. We have the first mountain is Mount Sinai, where the Mosaic Law. Or the Mosaic Covenant was given to Israel, and then the second mountain is Mount Zion. That's the contrast between Mount Mount uh, Sinai, the Mosaic Law, and Mount Zion, which depicts the heav- which is associated here with the heavenly Jerusalem and the New Covenant. Now, I want to lay this out for you, in sort of a uh, a thought paraphrase. Okay, now th- I'm going to leave this slide up here for a little while because some of you are going to write feverishly to get this down and uh, and I like to do this every now and then for my when, when I'm studying because it helps us see how the thoughts related, what the main, uh, main ideas and main verbs are. And what we see here is that the very first word in verse 18 is the word for and in the Greek this is a word gar which is uh, usually used to indicate uh, the writer is is explaining something as he's advancing in his his explanation or in his argument of something he now is going to give an example or an explanation that that furthers the development of his main idea and he gives a uh, illustration there in verses uh, 18 down through 20 uh, 21. And he says, for you have not come to, to the mountain, although there's no word for the mountain in the Greek text because of the context of the contrast. It's uh, it's usually inserted, but it's not really there in the original. And then in verse uh, 22, we have, but you have come to Mount Zion. So what he's contrasting is you, you have not come to one thing, but you have come to to something else. You have not come to one thing, but you have come to something else. Now, when he gets into the second part, he's going to drive down to a conclusion that's going to involve um, several different aspects that relate to the same thing. They're not synonymous, they're not identical, and they're all indicated by the phrase and to. You have not come to Z- Mount Zion. Uh, and to the city of the living God, or you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly, to God, to the spirits of just men, to Jesus the mediator, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. There are two things that are mentioned. The last two things that are mentioned are important to focus on because that sees what, that, that's what he's driving to. Okay? So once you understand what, what, what the end result is supposed to be, what the end issue is, then when we go back and we start at the beginning, we have an idea of of the roadmap that we're following and what the destiny is, and then the details along the way begin to make sense. Sometimes if you don't know where you're headed, then what happens along the trail becomes a little confusing because you don't know where you're going. But once you know where we're going, then the details leading up to it make a lot more sense. I I remember learning this in reading many, many, many years ago when I was trying to work my way through some of Francis Schaeffer's books. And I had his book, uh, uh, I think it was Escape from Reason, which is a really small, thin book. It's only about 90 pages long. But if you don't really have any background in the history of philosophy or the history of ideas or uh, history of art or some of these things, you can really get lost in it. And so I I was reading through it and trying to understand everything that he was he was uh, saying, and then I got when I finally got to the end, it was like a light bulb went off and oh now I understand what he's been once I understood where he was headed, then I went back and read it a second time and it made sense, and I learned that that was a great lesson to learn because as I went on to graduate school and seminary and. And also working in, in philosophy, many times when I would read a book, the first thing, I learned that the first thing you read is the introduction. Most people skip the introduction and go to the first chapter. But in the introduction, a good author will tell you usually why he is writing what he is writing. Now I'm not talking about reading, uh, Agatha Christie. Okay, or you know, some other suspense novel. I'm talking about reading good nonfiction work. Then when you get to the, then you read the conclusion. You read the introduction because he'll tell you what he's going to try to demonstrate, why he's doing it, why he's writing the book. Then you read the conclusion and find out what, what he, how he pulls everything together, and that's where he makes his points. And then you go back and you look at the table of contents because if he's, he gives you a good table of contents, you'll see what all the main, uh topics are leading up to the conclusion and then you have a really good idea of the roadmap and the destiny and then when you start reading you you can make a lot more sense out of what's going on. So that's kind of the idea here. We're going to start uh looking at this as kind of the over uh the flyover map. We are going to contrast two things, something previous and something present. The uh, first mountain, Mount Sinai, and the second mountain Mount Zion, but what he's driving toward has to do with the fact that Jesus on the cross dies on the cross and there he was the sacrifice for the new covenant. So we're going to have to understand what that, what the new covenant is again. And, the, and then he relates that to what Christ did on the cross as a sacrifice is related to uh, the kind of sacrifice that's, sacrifices that begin with Abel. Where does Abel come from in all of this? These are the kind of questions that you ought to ask. When you read something, you ought to be asking certain questions. And we started off talking about Mount Sinai. Mount Mount Sinai is, you know, some 3,000, let me see, probably about 3,000 years after Genesis 4 when we have uh, Abel. And the first part deals with Mount Sinai. Where does Abel come from in all this? Why does he end by going back to Abel? Now, that's an important question that that we need to really answer at the beginning so that we understand what what the structure is and we can figure out why the writer is saying the things he's saying and why he is setting it up this way. So we see that he's drawing this contrast between Sinai, where the Mosaic law was given, to Israel as a way of life, and then the contrast is with the new covenant that is uh, that the, where the sacrifice for the new covenant is established by Jesus Christ, the sacrifice is made at the cross. Now, the new covenant, as we studied in Hebrews 8, relates back to Jeremiah chapter 31. We'll look at it in a minute. But to remind you, in Jeremiah 31, God told Jeremiah, this is in the Old Testament, this is before, uh, the, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah was defeated by Nebuchadnezzar, before they, the deportations to Babylon, before the Babylonian captivity, there is hope given to Jeremiah. Jeremiah warns the people, God is going to bring this punishment upon, upon Judah because of their idolatry. He is going to take the people out of the land as he pro- as he promised to Moses. He swore to Moses that if these people do not obey me, then I will remove them from the land. And if they turn back to me, there would be the gracious return to the land. And so in that uh within the context of that return promise, and incidentally that return uh is the Hebrew word shuv which means to turn or or to return and sometimes it's translated to repent uh teshuva and the teshuva has the idea of really turning it's not an emotional concept it's an idea it's often used and when somebody's walking in one direction they turn and go the other way and that's the idea it relates to the the new testament greek word is uh, metanoeo meaning a change of mind or a change of thinking and so uh, the primary and the most significant, we'll really get into this when we start our study in Acts next, uh, ne- next week, and we, especially when we get into the second chapter of Acts, is that um, this command, this statement that's made in Deuteronomy 30, verse 2, God says that when they repent or when they turn back to me, then I will return them to the land. And that's the context of Jeremiah 31. And in Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah... Uh, is told by God that I will make a new covenant, a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. He didn't say I'm going to make this new covenant with with Christians. He doesn't say I'm going to make this new covenant with the church. He doesn't say I'm going to make this new covenant with the nations, with the Gentiles. He says I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Judah and the house of Israel that's not like the old covenant. What's the old covenant? it's the covenant that God made with Moses. Now what was interesting was when I've been doing some studying in the last few weeks on the on the high holy days and studying some of the the different uh ways and the different belief systems within the different uh, uh sects of Judaism, uh orthodox, conservative, reformed, and and reconstructionist. One of the things that I saw within the orthodox structure is that they believe that the Mosaic Law was permanent. And of course, a question I'd like to ask ask a rabbi sometime is is how do you handle this belief that the that the Mosaic Law was permanent when Jeremiah says, Jeremiah 31 says that God t- says I'm going to make a new covenant. That is not going to be like the old covenants. Clearly the terminology new and old indicates that, that God intended to replace the covenant given at Mount Sinai with this latter covenant. Now that's really, that whole idea is picked up and developed in the New Testament, but it's clearly indicated, uh, that there's going to be this new covenant, uh, promised in, in the in the Old Testament, so how does all of that relate? Because, as we see uh, Tom asked me a question right before class that that correlated to this that covenants are usually established, or the Hebrew word is to cut a covenant with a sacrifice that 's when when it is established that that is when it is. If, if it's not inaugurated or going into effect at that time, that's, that's a word we work with because we don't believe the new covenant has gone into effect yet because it's with the house of Israel and the house of Judah and it's indicated by, uh, Israel being completely back in the land and all of these other things with the Davidic king and Messiah and all of those things. So that hasn't come into effect yet, but that there's a, there is a, Sacrifice that establishes that particular that 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 covenant, just as we have in the Old Testament. So we have to put this within that context of the Bible. So we ought to ask. We ask this question at the end here. He talks about Jesus as the mediator of the new covenant, and 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 that his sacrifice, and that's the meaning of the word, the blood of sprinkling, speaks better things than that of Abel. Than what of Abel? Then the sacrifice of Abel. So this takes us all the way back into Genesis. So we, let's t- stop a minute and just try to understand a little bit about what is going on here in the thinking of the, of, of the writer of Hebrews. What's he really trying to get across to us? What's the structure? Now, let me, <coughs> let me go over a couple of things here to help us think about this. First of all, whenever we approach the Bible. We need to come at the Bible like we would come to to any other book that we study that that somehow the author knew what he was talking about and when you go and you pick up a book you go down to the uh, to the bookstore and you pick up a biography on somebody or you pick up a uh, <coughs> a good uh, nonfiction work on any particular topic, you expect that the author Knows what he's talking about. You've heard good things about the book, which is why you're, you're purchasing it. Maybe you've heard good things about the author. He has a good reputation. And you believe that, that he, he's, he's done good research. He's written stuff in the past. He's credentialed. You believe he knows what he's talking about. And so you're going to give him the benefit of the doubt. Now, if you read f- very far into it and if you are familiar with the topic yourself, if you have some expertise in the topic, perhaps he may say some things and you begin, oh, well, wait a minute, this guy's, I'm not sure I really trust him. Maybe he's got some problems. you. So doubts begin to be raised. But we usually, we go to any book with this presupposition that, the, that we're going to give the benefit of the doubt to the author, unless it's the Bible. We come to the Bible, we're going to say, oh, well, you know, our presupposition is God really can't objectively reveal himself to man. God can't really communicate to us in a way that is clear. So at, we approach the Bible and we say, right off the bat, it can't be what it claims to be. Well, if it can't be what it claims to be, why are you reading it? Why do you pay any, pay any attention to it? Oh, you don't read it. Well, yeah, that's probably why, but... Um, So many people just give it lip service. But if it's not what it claims to be, why is it read? Uh, It has good principles in it. Okay, why don't you go read the Bhagavad Gita, the Book of Mormon, or something like that? They claim to have good principles in it. No, because there's something distinct, unique about the Bible. And it claims to be the Word of God. Again and again and again when we read through this, we see these statements that God said. Well, either he did or he didn't. There's no option. Oh, I thought God said. No, that's not really in there. It's either he did or he didn't. And if he didn't, then when the writer says, and God said, then he's just telling you what he thought God might have said. And now we're just off into whoever wrote this opinion about things, and why is his opinion any better than anybody else's opinion? But the claim that we read when we come to the Scripture is this is the very revelation, which means unveiling of God to man, of information that God says that man needs to have in order to uh, know the, the ultimate nature of reality so that man can function within creation a- instead of being at odds with creation. And so it begins by describing that God created the heavens and the earth and how he created the heavens and the earth and that God created man distinctly different from all other creatures and man is created in the image of God and both male and female are equally image bearers. There's no distinction in terms of, uh, one has a little bit more of the image and one has a little bit less. Uh, Genesis 1, 27 is very clear that man's created in the image and like, likeness of God. God said, I created, uh, let us create man in our image, male and female, we will create him. So the idea of man there is really mankind. We'll create humanity in our image, male and female, he created them. Now, in chapter 2, he places man and the woman, Adam and Eve, in the garden, and he says, I've given you everything you need. See, God's a good God. He's given them everything they need to do what God intends for them to do, but he gives them a test. And he says, there is one tree here you can't eat from. You've got thousands of trees that you can eat from. You've got all the variety you could possibly hope for, but there's one tree you can't eat from. And that's the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because in the day you eat from it, you'll die. Not because it's poisoned, not because they were allergic to it, Not because it was bad for them, but because there was a test here, and the test is are you going to take God's word for it or not? And that's the test that we see that runs all the way through Scripture. Are we going to take God's word for it or not? In other words, are we going to, what was that word I used when I started? Are we going to believe God? When God says you go down here three blocks and turn right and go three blocks and turn left at the light, are we going to believe him or not? That's the simple test. Do you believe God when he says don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or not? And if you don't believe him, there are going to be consequences. And what God is showing is the consequences at that time of disbelief because there is no evil in the universe. It's created perfect. There's no sin in the universe. Man is created perfect in God's image. Is that There's going to be... A consequence. God said, You'll die. Now, Adam didn't die until he was 930 years old. We don't know how old Eve was, but she was probably pretty close to that same age. They and and their, their children lived for hundreds of years. So he's not talking about physical death in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. He's talking about a death, a separation that occurred spiritually between Adam and Eve. And God, between Eve and God, there is now this separation. Now how do we, how do we understand that? Well, the Bible's a unified book. It's written by, ultimately by, we believe by God, the Holy Spirit, who has inspired all the authors, so they write, what they write is the truth. And they know what they're talking about. God has revealed it to them. And so everything fits together. So we move from this initial, uh, statement about death, And penalty of death. And then the next thing we see is that they eat from the fruit. They disobey God and something happens immediately. It says, and they were, they were, they were naked, realized they were naked and ashamed. And then God came to walk in the garden with them, which he did every day. And they were afraid and they ran and hid and they took fig leaves and sewed them together to cover up their nakedness. So the, the action that they took of Sewing together these fig leaves is an action that 's taken in order to try to disguise the fact that something has changed, and that something changed because they disobeyed God, and so they 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 try to cover it up through their own efforts and but their efforts aren 't good enough, and as soon as God sees them, he knows what 's happened. And he starts asking questions to expose what's going on. Not because God doesn't know what's happened. He's God. He's omniscient. He already knows what's happening. He knew what would happen before He created him. But He asks questions in order to get them to uh, admit what has what has taken place. And so you know the story how God asks them, says, "Where are you?" And they said, "Well, you know, we're here." And and you know, uh, Eve blamed the serpent. Adam blamed Eve, and we had the whole beginning of passing the buck and blaming somebody else for your own problems. And, uh, <clears throat> God is the first counselor. And he explains that there are consequences for these bad decisions. And he lays these consequences on what's usually referred to as the curse in Genesis chapter 3. And you have the consequences on the serpent, the consequences on the woman, the consequences to, to Adam. And at the end, the text says that he clothed them. See, God solves the problem that's created by sin. They couldn't solve it with their own efforts. God had to do it. And he does it, he clothes them with animal skins. Now, we don't really know what that says because what what we see when we read through the Bible is that you get certain things told to you at the beginning in a sort of general way, and later on more and more information is given which helps us understand why things were done that way, but God doesn't just do this information dump on the second pa- page of scripture and give us a full-blown uh, doctrine of sin, doctrine of man, and doctrine of salvation. You can't understand it yet. So He's going to build the, this incrementally as He goes through, as He goes through the scripture. And the, the first event that we see that happens after that is that we move forward about 20, 30 years or so. And Adam and Eve have had several children. And the oldest is Cain. And the next is Abel. And they are, they've developed occupations and they're, they're laboring within their occupations. And Cain is a, uh, a farmer, worker of the field, and Abel is, working out with the flocks and the sheep and the and the cattle. Now, what's interesting is, now, why are they doing that? Why is he doing that? Have you ever thought about asking that question? Because within the context of Scripture, he's not raising them for eating food, which is why we normally raise sheep and cattle today. They're not meat eaters. That doesn't come into the text until after the flood and after the event with Noah unless, of course, whoever wrote it is just stupid. But see, that's the assumption people will bring to the text. Well, they just didn't think about these things. How arrogant can we be that somehow we're smarter than somebody who lived, you know, 3,000 years ago, that he can't figure out that within three pages he's going to completely contradict himself? The point is he's raising sheep because that's, the animal that, these are the animals that are used for sacrifices that have been taught, uh, implicitly, it's implied in the text when God clothes them with animal skins. I mean, there's all kinds of things that go on, as I've explained before, that God had to teach them when he When he clothes them with animal skins, he has to teach them how to kill the animal. He has to teach them how to skin the animal, how to prepare the hides, how to treat them so that they don't become hard and brittle, but they're soft and supple and can be used for clothes, all those things. So God's giving them all kinds of information. Now, we get to this situation where Cain comes, and he brings the results of his own work, his own effort. And he brings that to God, all this beautiful produce. This is my sacrifice. God doesn't accept it. Why? Because God doesn't accept man's works, man's efforts. It it just isn't good enough for God. It's got to be done God's way. God has the right to say, it's my way or the highway. And God, all the way through the Old Testament, we see these examples of exclusivity. Modern man has a real problem with Christianity because Christianity says there's only one way to God. There aren't hundreds of ways to God. There's only one way to God. But the, the you read the old testament God says Cain your ways not my way. You brought your fruit it's great it's good it's going to keep you healthy. You did a great job. You're a good farmer. But I don't accept it. He accepts Abel's sacrifice because Abel follows the plan. He does what God says to do. He brings a sacrifice. But now let's stop and think about this. Can a sacrificial animal, can a lamb or a goat or later on a bull, can that really take away the problem of sin? It's a substitutionary thing. As we look at how the sacrifices are developed, what happened, happened was that man would put his hand upon the animal and recite his sins. And the picture there is that his guilt, his sin, is transferred to the animal, and then the animal pays the penalty. Doesn't seem very fair, does it? Not very, not very good for the, for the poor uh, lamb. But God's teaching something. It, it's, it's not a pleasant thing to take a lamb in this kind of a situation that's about a year old that you've raised, and now you're going to take this lamb and you're going to lay it upon the altar, and you're going to take out your knife and you're going to cut its throat so that it bleeds to death. But it's teaching something. See, we, we have to think about this from the perspective of the Bible, that God is saying, I've got to start teaching you about what really happened in Genesis 2 with his sin, and when Genesis 3, when when Adam and Eve sinned, that there is a really a serious penalty here. But it's a spiritual penalty, and because you can't see it, taste it, touch it, feel it, you can't quantify it, it's it's really difficult for people to understand the significance and the seriousness of it. So here you have a great object lesson, and you've got this bleeding, trusting-looking, doe-eyed lamb that that you've got to kill. And that really hit home with me. It was several years ago when we took our first trip to Israel, and we went to the uh, south gate for the Temple Mount, And we went to a little, there's an exhibit there that has a great orientation to the history of Israel, the history of all the things that took place on the Temple Mount. And they showed this uh, wonderful eight or ten minute uh, film that they did about what it was like for someone coming from a small village outside of Jerusalem to come to Jerusalem and bring their sacrifice. And there's this man walking along and he's walking up the steps of the temple carrying this year old lamb in his arms and the the camera just zoomed right in on it on the face of that lamb and you just see these innocent eyes and all of a sudden you know all these things that are taught in the scripture just had a new level of reality that he's got to take this animal and personally well by the time you get into the second temple he didn't do it personally but early on they would they did that personally so there's this sacrifice that takes place now It's not a very complex uh, sacrificial system there with Abel. But it gets the point across. And God says, if you do what I tell you to do, then you will learn the principle that there has to be a payment for sin. Sin is terrible. And you can't do it on your own. You can't go out and work it off like Cain tried to do. You can only do it the way I tell you to do it, which is what Abel did. And so this is why Abel's listed uh, early in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, as the first example in verse 4 of faith, he said, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Why was it more acceptable? Because it was the sacrifice God said to bring. You know, when I was a kid... And I understand this better now that I am an adult and I understand things about budgets and money and a lot of other things like that. And I understand, uh, you know, my my folks grew up and dealt a lot with, uh, lived in the Depression. And when my dad was seven years old, he and his mother were picking cotton on the cotton fields in the high-staked plains of Texas outside of Lubbock. Though when I was a kid, I would say, you know, I would really like a bicycle or this thing or that thing or whatever it was. And... You know you would look at a, I would look at a certain thing not necessarily really expensive, but it was okay, I want this, this is what I would like to have, and I would get brand X every time I mean, even when I was an adult and my parents had money, I always ended up getting brand X. I never got I So, and when I was an adult I'd just throw it away and go buy what I wanted because it had the features and it had the quality and everything else that I wanted. But that's the way God is. He said, Why when I tell you to do A, B, and C, you do X, Y, and Z. X, Y, and Z doesn't cut it. A, B, and C does. And I just want you to trust me and do what I tell you to do. That's the same lesson that we had in, in uh in Genesis chapter two. Just don't eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge. You disobeyed me. Okay, there are consequences. So We have the sacrifice. Then, as you go through time, we end up with Noah gets on the ark, and we have the flood, comes off the ark, and he has uh, the clean animals, those which would be worthy for sacrifice. There are seven, three pair, and an extra. Why does he have the extra? For a sacrifice. Why does he carry three pair of clean animals and only two of the unclean? because you have to propagate more of the clean animals because these are worthy of sacrifice. And so you have a little more information given about sacrifices, and there's a great, another dimension added to these sacrifices. When Noah gets off the ark and you have the sacrifices explained there in Genesis chapter 9 when the, ar- the covenant with Noah is made, and the sign of that covenant is the rainbow indicating God's promise that he will never destroy the earth again by uh, by water, but also he um, a, a, at that time he institutes capital punishment, and he authorizes man to start eating meat because things changed in the environment between the pre flood environment and the post flood environment and then we go down through time a little bit more and we come to Abraham and god 's call of Abraham. And God promises Abraham that I'm going to give you a son, and it is through that son that your seed will be named. Do you believe that, Abraham? That just a simple promise. Do you believe that? And Abraham believes it like the guy who truly believes it when you go down, driving down to the Galleria, what's the... Um, how do I get to the Galleria? Ask somebody, they give you directions, you believe it, but then halfway there you say, you know, I think it's this way, and you go the other way. You believed him at first, but then you didn't carry it out. Those two different issues. That's kind of what's happening with Abraham. He believes God, but then years go by and there's no kid. God, what about Eliezer, my servant? Or Sarah comes to him and says, I got another idea. Instead of us trying to make babies, we're too old. Uh Go see Sarah, my handmaiden. And he tried that, and that boxed things up, and we still deal with the problem with that, with the uh, Arab-Israeli conflict still goes on. And then finally, Abraham got it. God really is going to do it, and he's going to do it through us. And even though Sarah's 90 and I'm 100, God's going to regenerate our bodies so that we can have a baby, and God does that. And you talk to an OBGYN about what had to happen to Sarah for her to be able to carry a body uh, a baby at that age, and the rejuvenation of the uterus and the skin so that it would stretch and elasticity there and all these other things that go with it. It is a phenomenal thing. But what is God showing? He's showing, once again, I can bring life where there is death. That's what God's about. You do it my way, there's blessing. You don't do it my way, there's, there's cursing. And then he come to the Exodus, and God brings the descendants of Abraham out of out of uh, Egypt, and God's going to give them a much more complex sacrificial system. Why? Because by this time you've had uh, 3,000 years or so of lessons about sacrifice, 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 substitution, always emphasized. But now we have to recognize the problem of sin is really, a little more complex than you've seen before. There's different dimensions to this. And so we're going to have different kinds of sacrifices to sort of illustrate the different dimensions of the, of, of the solutions to the sin problem. It's not just purely substitutionary. There's forgiveness related to it. There's reconciliation related to it. There's peace related to it. There's joy related to it. All of these things. So you have burnt offerings and meal offerings and fellowship offerings and sin offerings and trespass offerings. And that's why you have all of that covered in the first part of Leviticus. And that kind of brings us up to where we are at the beginning of this, this section in verse 18 talking about coming to Mount uh, to Mount Sinai. So we've walked our way through the background, and now all of a sudden what happens at Mount Sinai begins to make sense. Mount Sinai doesn't happen in a in a vacuum. So he says, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, For you have not come uh, to that, just take out mountain, to that which may be touched and burned with fire and blackness and darkness and tempest. So he's talking about what happened when the Israelites came to Mount Sinai. Now let's go back and see why did Mount Sinai occur and what's God trying to teach these recently freed slaves in that event. Well, first thing that God had um, instructed Moses is that there is a special, special position that Israel occupies in God's thoughts and God's plan. He says he said to in exodus four twenty two he said uh, to Moses and you should say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Okay, now if you have been a parent or a child, then that includes everybody, I think. Uh, then you understand this process. there is a birth event. And there is a life event that takes place when the birth is over with. There's the development of ongoing life. What we see in the history of the nation Israel is that there is a birth event that takes place in the Exodus event itself. The labor pains are would be analogous to the ten plagues. And with the tenth plague and the death of the firstborn among the Egyptians, then... Israel is let go. They have been slaves, now they're freed. They are redeemed is the word that is used. And so this is a picture of their deliverance from slavery. Exodus uh, 6.6, God instructs Moses, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. It's very clear. This isn't Moses' idea. There is something greater something beyond Moses, something beyond the creation that is instructing him, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, I will rescue you from their bondage, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Now notice these words that are used, bringing out, uh, rescue from bondage or de- deliverance, and redemption. These are key words that are later applied to a broader sense of of salvation, but they're grounded in a historical event because God's giving not only the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob an object lesson, he's giving us an object lesson to understand what the tra- this transaction is that occurs in what we often call salvation. And then after the uh, Exodus event, after they crossed the Red Sea, which is the big, Event. That's when they move from, from slavery in Egypt, and they're out. Now they're it, it, it's a different reality. They're free. They're a nation. They don't have a country. They haven't gotten to their land yet, but they are a nation of people. Exodus fifteen thirteen. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. It's the redemption part is over with. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Now the holy habitation is Mount Sinai. Somewhere on the Sinai Peninsula, usually to the traditional view is at Jebel Musa down in the uh, extreme southern tip, but most Bible scholars really doubt that. It just doesn't fit the travel days that are given in the Bible. It's probably located uh, more to the center part of the Sinai Peninsula, a little bit more uh, to the, to the uh, northeast. Okay, so they're going, now there's going to be a... Uh, a new system that's going to be given. They're going to be given a sacrificial system related to the tabernacle. And uh, this is going to come and be described in Exodus chapter 19. So I want you to turn to Exodus 19. And as we go through Exodus 19, I'm going to relate this back to what we've seen in, in Hebrews. Exodus 19 tells us what happened when the Israelites came to Mount Sinai. Now we're told on the third new moon, that would be three months after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of, of Israel. So that gives us a little bit of a travel schedule. So it wasn't a full third month because halfway through the first month is when they had the first Passover on the 15th of Nisan. So it's, it's about a little over two, two and a half months. They've gone out of the land of Egypt. Now we know from caravan records and other travel records and diaries That most caravans moved at a rate of about eight to ten miles a day. Now, if you've got two and a half million people that you're taking through the, the, the the wilderness here, and they're, they're not going to quite make eight to ten miles a day. So they're going to make around five, five to six miles a day. And so you can pretty much tell that they're not going to get, uh, very far. So if they've been, been at this for about, um, 70 days or so, then they've gone maybe 250 to 300 miles at best in there. So there, that would get them across uh, a little bit further across the Sinai than than uh, uh, toward the land than than down south. So we're told they set out from Rephidim, came into the wilderness of Sinai, encamped in the wilderness, and there Israel encamped before the mountain. Well, Moses went up to God. So Moses is going to go up on the mountain where God is going to meet with him, and God calls out to him and says, okay, I'm going to give you some instructions for the house of Jacob and the house of Israel. You're going to go back down and tell everybody what's going to take place, and this is extremely serious. You have seen what I've done to the Egyptians and all of the plagues. They have had experiential, empirical uh, demonstration of God's power. This is not somebody to be handled uh, lightly. He says, you've seen how I bore you on eagle's, eagles' wings, brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice, this is verse 5, I'll have a slide for this, now therefore if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, which he's getting ready to give them, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure. Uh, you shall be a special treasure for me, the ESV uh, translate this, my treasured possession. Uh, the Hebrew word here is segula, which indicates a special possession, a special treasure, something that is uh, unique and valued uh, by, his, by its owner. And so this identifies Israel. Later on, in Zechariah Zechariah says that, that the Jews are the apple of my eye. Whoever harms them harms the apple of my eye. This hasn't changed. This is why uh, the Jews have been set apart by God as a special and unique people from the Abrahamic covenant. These are a special treasure to me above all people for all the earth is mine. God is asserting his authority, his sovereignty. I run things. It's my way or the highway. And my way is that I have chosen this people, and they're the ones through whom I'm going to deliver uh, my revelation and salvation. So I've chosen them above all the other, all the other people. Psalm 135:4 reiterates the same idea for the Lord. God, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for Himself, Israel for His own uh, possession. And then in verse six, Exodus 19:6, uh, God goes on to say, "And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests." And a holy nation. Now, holy doesn't mean morally pure and upright. That's how most people think of holy, or somebody who's extremely pious. The word holy, from the Hebrew word kadosh, indicates something set apart for a purpose. Uh, the vessels in the in the uh, temple were kadash. They were holy. They were set apart for the use of God. But a a vessel, a pot, a golden candlestick can't be morally right or wrong. It, it's it's metal. There's no morality involved. It's set apart for the service of God. So God called out Israel to be set apart to him. And and as a nation, they would stand in relation to the rest of the nations as a priest. In the same way that the tribe of Levi would produce the priest that would stand in the stead for the rest of the tribes before God, the nation of Israel would be the priest nation in relationship to the rest of the of the nations, the Gentiles. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So their as a nation, their deliverance, their identification with God takes place at the Exodus event. And now that they've become called out as a special people, God is then going to tell them how he wants them to live. Those are two different issues. Becoming a special people is one thing, Living like one is something else, and so he's going to give them the uh, the Mosaic law on Sinai. Now, look at what happens associated with that. He appears to them, and he tells Moses to go down and uh, to organize the people and give them instructions on how they are to approach God, because this isn't just a normal, uh, a normal thing. It has to be done according to God's regulations. You can't just go walking up on the mountain uh, because God's up there. There are problems with that. So Moses came, called the elders of the people, and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded them. And the people answered and said, okay, whatever God told you to do, we're going to do. We, he has delivered us. We're going to obey him. And, uh, then God says, uh, in verse, uh, whatever it is, nine, the Lord said to him, behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud. That the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. So God's going to come down as a thick cloud. This is, we, the, the word is used, that is used that the rabbis coined after the end of the Old Testament was Shekinah. And that is the dwelling of God. And it wasn't, we think of it as something brilliant and glorious. It's not. It, it hid the presence of God. It's a thick, dark cloud that settled down on Sinai so the people couldn't see God. And would hide his presence, and then uh, Moses uh, described the people that um, God gives them the instructions, he says, "Come uh, consecrate them today, and so this is done symbolically, you wash all their clothes. Now, that is a physical act that is to depict the importance of cleansing from sin. Be ready on the third day, and on the third day God 's going to come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you're going to set limits there. They can't just run up on Mount Sinai. You're going to build a fence around the bottom so that they can't get past it, because if they do, they're going to die. There are consequences to disobeying God. God sets the rules. We've seen this pattern again and again and again from Genesis 1, again with the Noahic flood, again with uh, Abraham, and again with and still with Moses. God sets the rules. So on the morning of the third day, there's thunder, lightning, thick cloud on the mountain, a loud trumpet blast, all the people in the camp tremble. This is fearful. They're scared. In Deuteronomy, Moses says he was even more scared. There's There's terror among the people here as God is descending on Sinai. Mount Sinai, verse uh, 18. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. The whole mountain trembled greatly. It shuddered, an earthquake type of situation. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. Moses went up, and the Lord said to Moses, Go down, warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to to look, and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break them out. Uh, break out against them, and Moses said, Lord, the people can't come up on Mount Sinai, for you warned us, and we built the uh, fence around it, etc., cetera, et cetera, And he says, go down and come up, bring Aaron and the others with him. So they go down, and God speaks to all the people. Now, when God speaks, it's objective. The, Moses isn't hearing this in his head. Aaron's not hearing this in his head. The people aren't hearing it in his head. It's objective revelation. If they had turned on a recorder, video recorder, anything like that, they would have recorded the voice in the presence of God. This has objective reality. It's not just something they made up along the way. If they made it up, who cares? If it has objective reality, then it's significant. And it has objective reality, and God revealed the law. But it's a scary thing. That's the point that the writer of Hebrews is saying in Hebrews chapter 12. Now let's go back and just pick up the description in Hebrews 12, and then we'll close out. So in Hebrews 12, we read, For you have not come, this is a contrast, you've not come to something that can't be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, and gloom, and a tempest. That's what was happening on, on Sinai. The sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. That's what happened when God, after he gave the Ten Commandments people, said, oh, no, this is too much for us. We can't stand the voice of God. It scares us to death. Moses, you just go up there, write it down, and bring it back. But don't make us listen to God anymore. It scares us to the very core of our being. Why? Because they're aware just like Isaiah in Isaiah six, when he's in the presence of God, he's he realizes he's a sinner, there's nothing he can do about it. And he's he's right there in the presence of God, and God's the one who purifies him. He can't do it himself. So The uh, writer of Hebrews goes on to say, for they could not endure the order that was given, which was if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That's in Deuteronomy uh, Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 19. Okay, that's the contrast. The contrast is this is what God had planned. It's temporary. It was the old covenant. But there's a new covenant, and the new covenant has a different reality. The old covenant represented terror. The new covenant represents the glory of God, and that is what we'll focus on in the uh, next three verses when we come back next week. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be reminded of your holiness, your justice, your righteousness that there's nothing that we can do on our own that could ever measure up to that. In fact, what we learn from the Mosaic Law is that nobody can keep it. Nobody can uh, achieve perfect righteousness. It's impossible. So somebody else has to, has to do it for us. And that's the picture and the sacrifice, the substitution. And this is what is fulfilled when Jesus Christ went to the cross to die for our sins. That ends it. It's not an issue anymore. It's not a problem. It is resolved. It is dealt with. It's over with. As Jesus said at the end, the last thing he said, it is finished. It's complete. Father, we thank you for our so complete salvation in Jesus Christ and all that he did for us. And may we come to live in light of all that that means. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.